You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahraven.com. Welcome to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange with me, Sarah Raven, and Arthur Parkinson. And today we have a friend and sort of gardening colleague, Sarah Mead, who I met through organic gardening maybe 10 or 15 years ago. And she is Yo Organic. So she is the wife of the husband and wife team, Tim and Sarah, who set up and have that incredible organic dairy business. But why have we got her on a gardening show? Because Sarah runs the garden and she does the whole sort of estate and and particularly garden and ornamental garden. Welcome, Sarah, to the podcast. Thank you. It's so lovely to have you here. So I guess we need to start at the beginning, really. So why did you and Tim so early on Uh, get into the whole organic story way 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 before everybody you know was was thinking that buying organic was the right thing to do yeah that's that's a really good question and actually in in a funny kind of way you know the whole organic thing is a relatively speaking quite a recent it's come to prominence quite recently but we've been at it for 26 years down Mm. here in deepest darkest summers that and really the reason being that we just we began to appreciate the real difference between doing things organically and not doing things organically. And also, to be brutally honest, we spotted a gap in the market. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. So, yeah, um, you know, did. all these things, whether they're sustainable and green or not, have got to be backed up with, firstly, good science. And secondly, they've got to be sustainable. And that doesn't just mean sustainable in terms of the planet, but also sustainable financially. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, we started, we started farming organically about 26, 27 years ago. And the garden kind of followed subsequently after that. I mean, you just did it instinctively. You you were drawn to it together. Well, I mean, you've explained, I guess. But who made that big jump? So you you were running or your family were running a normal commercial dairy herd. And then what was was the sort of moment where you decided to make that quite disruptive and very time-consuming change over with all the paperwork i mean i know because we we have it here yes. you know the whole soil association registration etc is mm-hmm. is not is no mean feat Mm-hmm. No, you're absolutely right. And I think it's sort of critical when you're talking to people that are looking at doing gardening organically that A, they realize that it's not a sort of all or nothing club. You know, mm-hmm. you don't have to be the full Monty. You can just do a little bit and still be welcomed in. But you're completely yeah. right. You know, we have been supporting the Soil Association for a very long time. And the farm, obviously, when it turned organic, we had the traditional two years off yeah. while we got our certification. Then we got our Soil Association certification. And from my point of view in the garden, actually, you know, I wish I could tell you that it was some that I was some fantastically virtuous gardener from the start, but absolutely not. Uh, the reason that I started gardening organically was yeah. because I didn't really well know any better, to be honest. Not having been a gardener at yeah. all when I lived in London, I came down to the countryside yeah. and basically did what 
what everybody else seemed to be doing. And seeing as I'm our little garden is six and a half acres in the middle of a, a 400 acre organic farm, uh, the fact that I didn't see any sprays yes. um, and I didn't see any uh, lime yes. or anything like that, you know, meant that it just didn't cross my mm. mind to be zapping things. So, yeah. yes, as much as I'd love to tell you that I sort of saw the light and had a road to Damascus moment, that's not quite what happened. I did it sort of by default and then got fully invested when I began to see the results. Yeah. And so, I mean, I'm pretty sure all our listeners are gardening organically, but why don't, between us, we just try and really tease out very quickly the key benefits from not resorting to any spray or any intervention in that way, or not any, as you say. I mean, it isn't a black and white thing, is it? It's more subtle than that. No, no, it is more subtle than that. And I think, I think, you know, if our sort of desire is to try and encourage more and more people to give organics a go to some degree, then I think it's very important that people don't feel already slightly sort of diminished by the fact that maybe they they do want a perfect lawn, but they're quite willing not to spray their roses. It, it doesn't have to be absolutely everything because frankly we're a nation of gardeners as as the three of us well know we are a, na- a nation of gardeners and actually whether you have a tiny little patio or a huge great estate yeah. just doing a couple of things would make i mean you imagine if every single gardener in this country made some tiny concession to organic yeah it would make the most single important difference that could possibly come about and it's for me it's it's just a no brainer there are certain things that you do have to live with but for me, it's it's more of a hands-off approach, yes. which ultimately means less work yes. in some areas, I should say, not all. But, you know, it's less work. It's hands-off. It's just don't be too desperate to lay your hands on the strimmer or the spray bottle or the feed pellets. You know, just yeah. leave it. And actually, I mean, it, it's not a quick fix, but it does work in the long run. That's my feeling anyway. But yes, the first thing to say is that it's absolutely something for everybody to do if they choose. Yeah, yeah. And and the benefits are pretty readily uh, visible, aren't they? I mean, just in terms of biodiversity yes. here, I mean, we, we arrived here 26 years ago, similar to you. But it's a 90-acre farm, not 400 acres, and the garden's only two and a half, not six and a half acres. <laughs> but actually, one and a half. I'm, I'm aggrandizing myself by adding another acre. But um, I mean, we obviously haven't sprayed since we've been here on the farm. And only, really honestly, only this year can I say that the wildflowers have finally romped. I mean, you know, right. it, it, it has taken a very long time for the orchids just by changing the maintenance and when you do the cut. It really seems to be a very good year this year for orchids, I think, because of the wet. But but in the garden, mm. butterflies, as we know, in your and my childhood, Sarah, we're rather older than Arthur, were a thing where you could almost describe flutters of butterflies in my parents' garden. Mm. And I mean, you mm. jolly don't see that now, do you? No, you don't. You're absolutely right. It is definitely better here. And I wish I'd sort of recorded it better when we arrived, but there's no doubt there are more now than there were. And and, and that's yes. exciting. Mm. But uh, what what do you think are the really tricky things? Because I know people will... Oh, gosh. Yeah. Yes, of course. There are the really... I mean, there, yeah. there's not a day goes by when I don't get challenged with a really tricky thing. So the first yeah. thing to do is is to actually just not take yourself too seriously or... Gar- I mean, it is only gardening at the end of the day. Yeah. <laughs> but so 
I'm going to say to you that it's it's difficult to have a Wimbledon style lawn yes. when you're gardening organically. And actually, I'm now such an old skeptic that if I see a Wimbledon style lawn, I get a bit sniffy and think, hmm, I wonder what's on that. Yes. Um, yeah. So my personal kind of betois, apart from obviously AstroTurf, we won't even go there, is you can't have a lovely sward. You have yeah. to just relax. I mean, our, all our grass here at Yeo Valley is clover, basically. There are distinct upsides to that, one of them being that if we have a very dry summer, the clover stays green where the grass goes brown. So mm. ridiculously, we do actually have a lovely green lawn when nobody else's is. So, yes. you know, um, <laughs> but it's not not worth fighting the battle of the lawn anytime soon. Let me tell you, just give up on that. The other thing I would put out there is roses generally. Now, we all love our roses, don't we? But yes. we don't have, we have some roses here. We have ramblers because actually they're very low maintenance. They do their own thing. And anyway, they're so high up in the trees, you can't see them anyway. Um, and then we have a, a, a garden which has got buff beauty. And actually, we just let them get on with it. We prune them so they've got lots of airflow. We feed them like mad. Um, but yeah. other than that, they just have to do their own thing. So any, But roses generally, I would never have a rose garden per se because I'm not willing to spray them, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. So those are the two kind of biggies. The other thing that makes it particularly tricky is to do an ornamental, I'm saying that in inverted commas, so to do a sort of ornamental wildflower meadow is tricky because obviously you can't use sprays to spray off your seed beds. So that is also tricky, but we've we've got around that in certain ways. Yeah. But yeah, the two biggies are definitely lawn and definitely roses for me. Okay, well, r- mm. roses I um we do have here lots, and we underplant them with salvias. But that's another conversation was in another episode, so we don't have to go there again. That's interesting. I mean, Arthur certainly in his garden, it's small, and lots of urban gardens are small, but they still want to include lawns. So um, I do think that's a really good thing. And that's why one of the reasons Arthur likes a yard, because... (laughs) Yeah. And clover also, it's one of the best pollinator plants, isn't it? If you can bear not to mow it. Yes. So yeah, go go clover, I say. Yeah, clover's great. And also, I mean, interesting, we did we did no mow May here. Mm. Yeah. And we had, I, I actually just sat down and thought, right, which bits of lawn could we do without? And actually, yeah. it's amazing when you really analyse it, that really what you just need is enough lawn to be able to put your bottom on, pretty much. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that of your friends. And that's it. But the no mow May patch we did out the back was absolutely throbbing with bees, bees. hoverfly you name it it was amazing yeah. and yeah. that was not mowing i mean what's not to love about that yeah so mm. you know that was that was all a four weeks restraint so are you mowing every four weeks then now no no we new... basically we do mow we mow the bits yeah. we've got once a week but we have very little lawn now mm. of, or very little in the way of formal lawn that basically all our formal lawn is path if that right. makes sense yes fantastic yes and that's about it. Partly because I just, I don't think it's worth, for me personally, it's not worth the man hours. Yeah. No. So, and it's, because we're in a farm, it's very nice to be naturalistic because it kind of blends yes. nicely. Yeah. Complements yeah. the farm. Yeah. How important exactly. is it to try and bring the farm into your gardening style, your gardening oh, gosh, that's, for visitors? I love that. Yeah. I love that question. Only because only three weeks ago, we had visitors in the garden and only mm. three weeks ago, somebody came running up to me and said, I'm not sure if this is right, but there seem to be a lot of cows in the meadow. Um, so it's extremely important it's it's very important to bring the farm into the garden but not quite as literally as that although I have to tell you they stuck to the footpath amazing Um, they did just about Um, so yeah it's super important I mean I know you know the whole thing about the sense of place is critically important I mean it is very Mm. the garden is very much an ornamental kind of you know target in the middle of, of the farm but having said that all my edges are blurry the hedges are completely native natural 
And uh, yeah, it feels because also, you know, like a lot of people, we've gardened more intensely nearer the house because that's the bit we get to sit in. Yes. Yes. And then as we've gone out, it's kind of gets a bit more. Sometimes it gets a bit wilder than I'd initially intended. But yeah, it definitely it definitely melds out better as you get into the um, into the horizon, basically, and where we segue with the farm. I mean, I know lots of people's obsession. And I remember when I, I came to write about your garden, I think it was in 2012, actually, when I first came. Mm. One of the main things that I know people are so preoccupied at that time of year is it was in June, I think, so similar time of year, is slugs and snail patrol. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think so much has moved on since 2012, actually, on what we can do about those pestilent little monkeys. But tell me what you're doing currently about slugs and snails apart from an awful lot of expletives you mean yeah um yeah we do that i mean every year there are every year here we have some sort of biblical pest of some sort yes actually so far this year i'm going to tell you it's a black fly anyway we do have we do have like everybody else um slugs and snails to a huge amount and ultimately they are like everything in the garden part of the food chain Mm. But even, you know, us total virtuous types have a lack of patience when it comes to things munching on my hard, hard grown veg. So we do, we have a belt and braces approach. We pretty much do a bit of everything. But the things that we found to be most effective, there are three things, basically. The first thing we do is we don't put our vegetables out until they are ungainly teenagers. So not when they're little. Um, So once they're teenagers, they're much, much less attractive in every way to slugs. And so we, we wait till they've got that sort of, you know, yeah. they've toughened up a bit, basically. The second thing we do is use good old barrier methods, be that bit gravel or coffee, I found actually does work. But you have to yeah. be very diligent about putting it, making sure you've got enough coffee and an unbroken ring around whatever it is you're trying to protect. Yes. And then good old nematodes. Yeah. Those, yeah. those are the three things we've, we've tried. We've tried pretty much everything, I think. And actually, I'm going to say annoyingly that some years, some things seem to work better than others. Yes. Mm. But I have no mercy when it comes to slugs. No. Absolutely no. none. <laughs> okay. Very good. Um, and birds, 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 isn't it? Birds, I mean, birds, just, birds. Yeah, yes. Just they, they, um, they, they really help out. Have you ever tried runner ducks, Sarah? Oh, now look, I love a runner duck. No, yes, yes, years ago, but not recently. Do they like slugs? Apparently. I just wondered if it was uh, something you use on the farm. If you've got a no, flock of runner sad, ducks to release. Yeah, that would be. Fortnight. I mean, I'd almost just have a flock of runner ducks just for the look. But... <laughs> We've tried chickens. Chickens are very, very snooty about what they will and won't eat. Yes, I've discovered. They are. Yeah. So we don't. I mean, the, yeah. The other. I mean, the, what Sarah was just saying about birds. We have an awful mm. lot of. I mean, a we're next to a lake, so you know we're attracting a lot of avian wildlife from that point of view. But also, we feed. We we do kind of judicial feeding of our birds. So our mm. bird feeders go out in November, and then I meanly take them away again in April. Um, oh. just to encourage the birds to actually predate on the pests in the garden rather than just living off our hard-earned cash. Oh, so, yeah. um, you know, that feels a bit mean, but actually it, it's just, it's quite kind of common sense, really. But that it does seem to make a huge difference. And tell me also, I mean, I remember one of the incredibly positive stories of visiting your garden is the whole compost story, which is, you know, I think you even beat Prince Charles in the speed from green matter, like, you know, chickweed to compost on your beds. I mean, is it still like three months? Yeah, it is pretty quick. I mean, to be honest, we, it's a controversial thing. We've we've had, since I last saw you, Sarah, I went, um, we had a t- sort of team visit up to the Walida Garden. Oh, yes. Their organic garden or their, bio, their biodynamic, actually, which is the stage again. 
But um, and I was talking to Claire, the lovely, lovely head gardener there. She, I think she's subsequently retired. I hope that wasn't anything to do with me, by the way. But anyway, we, we were having a chat and she I, I was slightly boastfully saying, you know, oh, we turn our compost in, you know, between 10 and 12 weeks. I'm saying we turn it daily. And, you know, aren't we clever? Yes. And she said to me, well, that's lovely. And yes, that is great. If you don't want any nutrients, if you're just using it as a mulch basically. Ah. But what she said, which I thought was very interesting, was a li- bit like a great Christmas cake. Actually, it needs it needs time <laughs> to ah. really build up the nutrients and build up the mycorrhizal fungi and everything within that compost. So she said, you know, there's nothing wrong with doing a 12-week spread, but you're not getting the maturity and ah, the nutrient gosh. level, which I thought made sense. So we've slowed down a little bit, okay. um, but we get through such colossal yes. quantities of it that actually that sort of forces us to be quicker than yes average I okay. guess and also yeah. we're lucky you know we've built a compost area that is the most important place in the garden yes. and, and we, can, we can maneuver a digger in it and you know it, it's it's built for speed and efficiency yeah 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 so, yeah it's it still remains critical yeah absolutely and also I mean I um I want you to talk about you know, your team there. So, I mean, you're the philosophy and you kind of lead the team, but then how how do you convince people who arrive perhaps from a more conventional horticultural background that that really this is the way? Do you find that difficult sometimes with communication? Yes and no. I mean, I think the thing is, it's quite often with anything like that, especially whether it's whether it's choosing to do more organic stuff or whether it's doing more health and fitness or whatever it is, quite often I think that the key is not necessarily trying to convince, but it's much better to show people Mm. um, and let them come to their own conclusions, I think. I also really a strong believer in humor because uh, nobody likes being told off, do they? So, you know, I mean, I hate the idea of people in some way being made to feel guilty or, you know, slightly chastened that they're not doing. Actually, that's not the point. The point is come and have a look, see what you think, see the mistakes actually because believe you yeah. me we have them every year yeah. so see the horrors see the glories and then decide what to take away yourself which is exactly what I do when I go and look at anybody's garden whether it's organic or not I spend my mm. whole time going oh I like that mm. but I'm not so sure about that mm. and both mm. those are equally important so visitors here I give them a really nice cake that helps a lot and mm. um, and then they get to wander around and make their own minds up and if they choose to, you know, if they engage any of the uh, any of the team on the discussion about organic, then, I mean, we're all fairly passionate about it. But we're mm. passionate about it from a kind of hands-on working point of view, yeah. which is, I think, the key, yeah. you know. So they're all fully committed. We all are. Yeah, it's not a theoretical Because actually, thing. it's just, it's a nicer environment. It's a yeah. nicer environment. And it's a more fulfilling annual cycle that way. Yeah. And, yeah. But yeah. you do, yeah, it takes a couple of years to get there. Yeah. You do have to sort of set your stall out and go for it yeah yeah how many I mean you're open every day no not every day we're open okay actually things have shifted slightly during the pandemic but we're open at the moment three times a week so on Wednesdays Fridays and Saturdays Um, and actually the funny story is that we're open on Saturdays uh, thinking that we would be inundated with with lovely visitors due to the Chelsea Flower Show being in May so I I said oh well we'll open every Saturday in June and July because that'll you know be we will have the demand well of course as we all know that's not happening so we're now opening on Saturdays in June July and October um, <laughs> to <laughs> hopefully um, for that. And yes, it's at the moment and, and probably forever, to be honest, it's pre-booked slots, which yeah. is fantastic yeah. for us because it means we know who's coming. Yeah. 
um, how many cakes we need to make and all that sort of thing. But yeah. also for the, the visitors' point of view, the feedback's been great that they they don't feel rushed or cramped that, you know, it's quite, you, you can still walk, you can wander around this garden really without bumping into anybody else at the rates we're doing. Yeah. Which is quite nice, Lovely. I think. So nice. So, so nice. yeah. 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 And so I'm glad you mentioned um, Chelsea because you were supposed to do it last year, weren't you? And yeah, you're now going to do right. it on the new date of this year's Chelsea, which is in September. So mm-hmm. has that been has that been a nice thing to suddenly have to do your garden, which was originally planned for May, to suddenly now do it in September? What plants are we going to expect to see well, from you? I'm, are yeah, you allowed to would... say or not? Oh yes, why not? <laughs> oh, Let's do it. Yeah, I mean the thing is, who knew really? I mean we were we we planned to be there in May 2020, and so we had a very May centric garden. So I should, well, the first thing I should say is that Tom Massey is designing for us. Which is fantastic because Tom Massey is as as cool, calm, and collected as I'm definitely not. So we make quite a quite a good team. So yeah, we went into a spring Chelsea. Luckily for us, a lot of the planting that we had planned for May, whether it was last year or this year, was hedgerow naturalistic planting, silver birches, brambles, that sort of thing. So although it won't be in flower, it'll all be in fruit. So that's just lucky. Lots of berries and Mm. things like medlars and quince and things like that, which, yeah, slightly different portrait. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, all our camassias that we grew so lovingly. um, (laughs) Seed heads of camassias. All the camassias. But I mean, this is one of the great advantages we have to being an actual garden. So all those camassias are now in my meadow, thanks very much. So nothing's gone to waste. No, nothing's gone to waste. And we're busy growing with mixed success because it is a Mm. huge learning curve for me. Dahlias, cosmos, all sorts of things for September. I don't want to, you know, it has been a bit of a nightmare and I can mm. completely see that if you're, you know, if you're, your stand at Chelsea is around alliums or sweet peas, that is a huge challenge. But for us doing a garden, actually, A, it means I can bleat on about it for the whole of the summer. So that's great. <laughs> and B, it means that actually we're designing a garden that is, I mean, this is quite a late summer garden anyway. Mm. So actually that's quite nice. And also I think it'll probably be the only time it happens. So just from a sort of unique point of view, I'm like, well, mm. well, that's great. Let's rise to the challenge and, and see what happens. See what happens. Slightly risky. but So what, what is your favourite, um, I'm going to ask you, what's your favourite ornamental flower for organic, an organic garden from a wildlife perspective? And what's your favourite native flower for oh an organic garden? Oh, my good grief. That's good really questions, tricky. Arthur. Very, yeah, very good question. Now, I'm trying to think. Because I think a lot of people feel that wildflowers, quite often me and, me and Sarah are constantly trying to get people to convince that they're not these delicate, whimsical things. They, they are garden, uh, proper garden plants, some of them. Yes. So I wondered if there were any that if you... yes had to take to desert I don't know, island, what would so they be? Many, yeah, I know that's really difficult because you see, <laughs> I, there are so many. Can I have a genre in there? Yes, you um, can. Yeah. So I'm going to say alliums. I'm going to say alliums mm-hmm. for ornamental. I know it's a bulb, so it's different. But it, just in terms of the single plant that is totally magnetic to every type of bee you ever saw, mm. uh, you can't be so. And we, have, we use alliums and chives, actually, which we let flower in the veggie patch and they are it is literally you you literally stop and think what is that noise mm. yeah with the bees it's, they're fantastic absolutely fantastic mm. i mean the interesting thing about the the sort of wildflower native thing is that actually our pollinators bless them you know obviously there are some flowers that are that are very very much more complex and not so accessible to bees but on the whole flowers are flowers and most bees will find their way, you know, sort of. So I think we get very hung up about having, you know, uh, very native or something. And actually, 
the bees don't worry about stuff like that. No, they just so worry about being that. able to get at the pollen, you know? Yeah. So, and I think we can make it more complicated than it needs to be. So for me, mm. yes, def- definitely any kind of allium gets a huge tick. So does clover. So do native poppies. I mean, mm. you know, if you haven't seen a bee drunk at the bottom of a poppy petal, you know, mm. they're just, it's fantastic. And then, I don't know, in terms of more ornamentals, I don't know what to say. All the cephalaria family, they're just, you know, Eremurosa, which you have in the garden right now, again, almost like echiums for bees, that yes. same that same sort of tower of bottoms all wiggling about, yes. which I just love. Yeah. So there's loads of stuff out there. I think that the main thing to say is just, just, just have everything you like and don't worry too much about it because those blooming insects will come. Yeah. <laughs> so you'll have hedgerow and single dahlias at Chelsea for September. Yes, single dahlias. Thank you for saying that. Yes, yeah. definitely. Are, I mean, I love a very blousy dahlia. Never mm. happier than with a Kelvin's floodlight. And so I don't know that one. Do you know that one? Don't Sarah? you? No, I no. don't. What's right, Kelvin's that's right. floodlight? Yeah, yeah Ooh, honestly. It's, a, I mean, yeah, Valley well, exclusive here. Well, uh, you're, it's, it's going to be a proper marmite for both of you. I can tell you. You'll probably oh. think, my God, what on earth. No. It is luminous luminous yellow um dinner plate job wow oh bless, gosh but it's yeah <laughs> so I, i'm not quite a strong flavor <laughs> oh very strong flavor it's it's very day medna okay. um anyway we won't be having those at chelsea i can promise you um no. but we will be having murky eye and their own subsidian all those lovely slightly sort of more nat- naturalistic yes. ones through through grasses and ferns and things like that Fabulous. Lovely. And one of the things that, that drew me to being interested in, in Yo and you two, well, you all from the start was you were also incredibly forward thinking on your branding. And right. um, you, you know, you had that, that whole sort of kind of chatty style on your labels and stuff uh, way before all the people like T-Clipper. And I mean, there are countless others now. Um, mm, that's right, yeah. I've always thought of you as very forward thinking. And so beyond that and beyond brand and beyond labels, what is the next tip for the big thing that we all need to be thinking about? I mean, organic gardening, I feel we must almost mm. begin to take for granted, but what should we yes. all start learning about and, and taking into our agendas in the garden really? Okay. Thank you for that. Well, lovely. Now, I almost want to get my soapbox out of the cupboard and stand on it at this Good. point. Um, but I resist. I resist. Oh, I wouldn't. Um, so <laughs> um, I think the next best thing is going to be around food. And I don't mean that in the way that we all think of it now. But I think I think we're all going to become much more aware of, of the, the difference between natural food and processed food. Mm. Mm. And that's certainly where we, as a brand, is... Not where we're heading, because we've always obviously done natural food. You can't get much more natural than a yogurt. But, you know, there, I think there's a there's a, a disconnect between things that grow and basic ingredients and then what those ingredients go through yeah. in order to end up at McDonald's or whatever. And don't get me wrong, I'm no saint. I mean, we all love the occasional treat, don't we? We all love the occasional splurge. But... The process versus the natural, I think, is going to be the next best thing. And I think, you know, we could, we'd all do an enormous amount of good for the planet and for the country and for our personal health if we all started rating our food, whether it's processed or not, rather than whether it's calorific. Because 
non-processed yes. natural food is born of the land that we live in. And we live in a wonderful country where you, there's huge amounts of grass and we need to be able to graze the grass and make proper use of it to keep the farmland that we all know and love and have been brought up in. And that that whole thing where, you know, you can go into a shop and you can actually, you can identify the ingredients of what you're buying. And when you look on a package, you can think, actually, I could I could buy every one of those ingredients in the shop. And if you, if you can't buy the ingredients, then you know it's a processed piece mm. of food. Yeah. Do you yeah, see what yeah. I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. And I think that's, I think that's the key learning. And it's not really about calorie counting and it's not really about being super virtuous, but it is about a bit mm. of common sense and just putting good stuff in. Who do you think will be responsible, Sarah, for policing this sort of hopefully what will be a new almost traffic light system of, of food mm. labelling? Should it be mm. government? Should it be supermarkets? Should it be the producer? And who do you think needs to be the policeman of this for it to be enforced? Yeah, I think anything else, I think anything like that basically the power lies with us doesn't it the consumer mm. that's the answer to the question really so it'd be wonderful if uh you know the supermarkets or government or took responsibility but actually the the likelihood is that responsibility will be taken when the demand is there yeah, yeah. so the more people that are asking for it because at the end of the day we're all in it all us food producers you know are in it to produce wonderful food and also mm. to make a buck so yeah. actually if the consumer is really asking the questions properly, and I think it is beginning to happen because I think people do want to be better informed, especially now, and especially at a time when we've all had a bit more, maybe a bit more time on our plates at home yeah. to actually mm. reflect on what we're, what's important. So the answer to the question is it's, it's going to start off with a consumer and really it should be, I think, ultimately a government thing. Yeah. really yeah. to push it through because it can't be the supermarkets and it can't be the producers it needs to be sort of an independent from that yeah and one of the i mean you know it must be absolutely in your boardroom every 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 week which is the whole methane mm. argument about yes. about, <laughs> about cows farting and all that and um, <laughs> so how do you convince people that eating good dairy is a perfectly responsible thing to do planetarily and mm. climate change wise well the bottom line is pretty much going back to what i was just saying about the whole grass growing thing yeah. so that's where it all starts really mm. so there's a lot more carbon under our feet than there is in the atmosphere is the first thing to say yeah and how does it get there it gets there through regenerative agricultural farming practice yeah so that means mixed farming methods but it means that cows particularly and any ruminant but cows particularly are very efficient grass-eating machines and yeah. turning the cellulose in that grass into uh, nutritious milk and or meat, depending on whether, whether it's beef or dairy. And or poo. I mean, that's the other thing. And is, or poo. Yeah. yeah, and the poo is magic. Yeah. So, And that poo mm. is returning carbon to the soil. So there's, there's yeah. much more car carbon going in than um, air going out, whether it's front end or back end. Yeah. So, you know, it's... The key is, like everything in life, the key is A, common sense, B, balance. So, yes, by all means, cut down on buying cheap and cheerful meat. Choose wisely. You know, it wasn't that long ago where you had meat on Sunday that lasted you till Thursday, mm. you know? Mm. Yeah. Um, and it was a treat. It was a treat. It wasn't taken for granted every day. And, and we're all for that. But mm. we think it's critical, critical with the climate change question that we have mixed rotational farming, mm. grass pasture fed, sheep, beef 
critically that keep mm. that food chain right and reintroduce the carbon under the earth where it is stored far more effectively mm. than it is in the air anyway. So actually we believe, I mean, we're going to say this, we're dairy farmers, but we believe yes. that uh, ruminants, cows are absolutely crucial to reversing climate change. And it's something we feel very strongly about. And we have done for ages. We're just, as usual, a little bit late to to the party mm. to go, oh, by the to way, shout. we think this, you know? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I know. We're not very good at shouting, are we? We need to do it more, I think. Yeah. Um, yes. But yes, so that's my answer to that question. Mm. Yes, yes, cows do burp and fart. And yes, the methane goes up in the air. It doesn't last much more than 10 years up there. So you're you're basically on a neutral cycle with that. And in the meantime, they're introducing a hell of a lot more of it underground, mm. which is where we actually need to store it. So mm. um, yes, obviously, I feel strongly about that. <laughs> yes. But yeah, that's the answer. Are you optimistic about the future of, of UK dairy? Do you think the consumer will be able to help the UK dairy resist, you know, American influence of, of mega dairies in the future? You know, I, I love the idea of more mixed farms, but mm-hmm. reading the statistics at the moment, unfortunately, we are, we don't seem to be in a place to support this, this beautiful idea from a, mm-hmm. from a government perspective. Do you think the consumer mm-hmm. has enough power and enough education to help you get there? Yes, I do. I I have to, don't I, really? Yeah. No, I absolutely do. I absolutely do. Because it's not difficult to grasp the common sense of it. Mm. And actually, we, you know, dairy is one of this country's greatest, greatest outputs. I mean, we're really Mm. very good at it because we have the absolute optimum high rainfall, lush grass. Couldn't be better. I think if you, I think for most people... I, I'm a great believer in people making an informed choice. I don't I don't really have a strong view about what people decide to eat or not eat. I certainly mm. don't have a strong in a lot of ways we feel very close to a vegan ethos. We just disagree about the basic cattle thing. Yes. So I don't have a problem with anybody making up their mind, but I do have a major problem with people not having the right information to hand. Yeah. Mm. I yeah. really do. And and so from my point of view, it it's I have every belief and every hope and every optimistic faith that if people are given the right information, they will get behind not just dairy but British brands generally I think it's very mm. important and nothing to be yeah. ashamed of you know there's mm. nothing jingoistic about saying I'm going to support British dairy I mean it's just common sense surely yeah 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 you want things to do well you've got to support mm. them otherwise yeah. lose it or use it eh? or use it or lose it whichever way around it is <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I think the final thing is although I'm rather jumping you into this um you've been jumped into quite a lot actually today but what is your favorite recipe for this time of year? So we're kind of moving in from early to high summer and um, we love finishing, you know, even if it's literally your favorite sandwich, it doesn't, it doesn't need to be. Okay. No, do you know what? That's, you've, that's fine. I can do this. I'm going to say it obviously has to involve strawberries. Yes. Obviously. Well done. Um, and we're, we're literally six miles from cheddar, I would say. So we have cheddar strawberries and I absolutely refuse to eat any other strawberry at any other time of year because there is a huge difference. So only, only yesterday we had a really generous uh, strawberry pavlova. Mm. And, you know, that is, that's, it's basically a posh eaten mess, isn't it? A strawberry pavlova. Yeah. But basically it's like lots of things like that. Asparagus, broad beans, you know, they taste different if they're being eaten exactly when they should be, yeah. you know. Um, there's something magical about that. Very, very simple ingredients. Very, very simple. Meringues, cream, obviously. British obviously. organic cream. Obviously. Um, and local strawberries, you know, field-grown local strawberries. Can't do better than that. Fabulous. Okay. We'll put that in the Gorgeous. podcast notes, everybody. So don't you worry. If you don't know how to make a really good pavlova, we'll tell you how. 
Thank you, Sarah, so much. Uh, so many other things that we could talk about, but it's time to go. It was great to have you and see you at Chelsea. How exciting is that? Yes. Yeah. Yes, very, very, very exciting. Fingers crossed, everybody. And thank you so much for inviting me on. Bye, Sarah. Bye. Thank you for listening to this wonderful podcast about Bigu Valley Organic Garden. Next week, we're going to continue on a theme of sort of farming, but it's a subject that you can at least do in your garden or allotment. It's talking about henkeeping, which is a passion there close to my heart. So join me and Sarah then for a visit to her hen house and talking about how to have happy, contented chickens in your garden. You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahoven.com.